This is The Guardian. Just a warning before we get started. This episode contains descriptions of violence that some listeners might find distressing. Hey, Jane Lee here, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is the full story. After 30 years on the run, Matteo Messino Denaro, considered the last godfather of the Sicilian mafia, was finally arrested earlier this month. On this episode from our global news podcast, Today in Focus, you'll hear how he evaded police for so long and what his capture means for the next era of the Cosa Nostra. Here's host Michael Safi. This grainy clip broadcast on Italian TV last year was the first time the public had ever heard his voice. Matteo Messina Denaro, the last godfather of the Sicilian Mafia. A man who'd boasted he'd killed so many people he could fill a cemetery. Who'd been part of a campaign against the government that turned parts of Italy into a war zone. And who had been on the run for 30 years. Uh, You see, over the past 30 years, uh, there had been several police inquiries into the boss's business and the people who were protecting him. But these, these were the first news about his identity. And at the moment, that moment, I thought, his arrest is near. Lorenzo Tondo covers southern Italy for The Guardian. He grew up in Sicily. He's followed Denaro's story his entire life. And last year, when the tape of his voice was released, something told him the net was closing. And about a year later... Breaking news out of Italy this morning. The country's most wanted mafia boss is now under arrest. I woke up with the news that I'd been waiting for 30 years. For the families of the victims, finally a degree of justice for Italy the end of one bitter chapter. Matteo Messina Denaro, the last godfather of the Sicilian Mafia, has been arrested. After three decades underground, earlier this month, they caught him on a rainy morning outside a medical centre near the city of Palermo. He hadn't even left Sicily. Police had been tipped off. Denaro, now frail, dressed in a brown sheepskin coat and tinted glasses, sick with cancer, looked around and saw that he was surrounded. An officer approached him and asked his name. He replied, you know who I am. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the end of the road for Matteo Messina Denaro and why it does not mean the end of the Sicilian Mafia. Lorenzo, I want to understand why this arrest is such a big deal. So take me back to the beginning of this story. Who is Matteo Messina Denaro and how did he become involved in organised crime? Denaro was born on April 26, 1962 in Castelvetrano in southwest Sicily. His father, Don Ciccio, was the head of the local clan and his godfather was also a member of the mob. Matteo Denaro Uh, learn to use a gun at 14. His problems with the law began in 1989. Uh, He was accused that year of uh, murdering Nicola Gonzalez, a hotel owner 
who complain to an employee of, that, of always adding these little mafiosos under our feet. Unfortunately, the employee was Messina Denaro's mistress. Hmm. So when we think of the mafia with a godfather ruling over captains who run their own crews, the kind of organization that's become famous from the Godfather movies or the Sopranos, it's that model that we're talking about. And so if I was an ordinary person living in Sicily, around the time when Denaro was coming up, what kind of influence would the mafia have had on my life? So if you were a business owner, you had to pay protection, the so-called pizza, uh, or you'd face violent attacks. Um, if you were a politician, you had to come to terms with a mobster, or you'd face violent attacks. But the mafia in some areas of Sicily in the past, they acted as a welfare state. Of course, in exchange, you had to follow the rules, such as the code of silence, and if you didn't follow the rules, sometimes you will pay with your own life or the lives of your loved ones. When you say that they bought people's loyalty through welfare, what kind of things did they do? They will basically giving people job opportunities, for example. Hmm. They will hire a young man um, in one of their companies uh, through their contact with politicians that will help uh, a, a person to get a job. Or to uh, or finding him a job in in the institution in the public administration, for example, using their contact with politicians. Hmm. And so, Lorenzo, the key moment in the Matteo Messina Denaro story comes in the 1980s with a shift in the way the Italian police tackle mafia crime, and with two judges in particular who decide to take the fight to the group. Tell me about how that played out. So, yeah. Basically, uh, the 60s and the 70s, uh, the, the mobsters used to basically manage their business undisturbed. Uh, things changed early in the 80s. And today in Palermo, a landmark Italian trial ended with mass conviction. When prosecutors and magistrates, especially the young Giovanni Falcone and the young Paolo Borsellino, uh, decided to basically crack down on that. At high speed, the judge reeled off sentence after sentence, totaling 2,600 years for 338 now convicted mafia members. A dozen major mafia leaders and literally hundreds of their underlings were sentenced to prison terms, in many cases for life. They were following the money. That was the strategy. They, will, they start following the money coming from the drug profits. Financial records, unlike human witnesses, can't be frightened into silence. So using a tough new law to examine bank accounts and tax returns, officials now are following the money trail. And, and that's what really bothers the mafia. That's when the mafia started to launch his war against the government. La notizia arriva poco dopo le 17. Un attentato di Namitardo a Palermo. Molti feriti, forse colpito un magistrato. This war started to escalate when, when the mobster killed the legendary magistrate Falcone and Borsellino in 1992. His car was blown up by a half-ton bomb on a motorway in Sicily. His wife and three bodyguards also died. The killings, which also involved Denaro, was a breaking point. Uh, the Italian authorities uh, you know, introduced special powers for white-tapping mobsters introduce anti-mafia laws and uh, start charging people for mafia association. It was a war. It was a real war between the mobsters and the institutions. 
Claire Longrig. You're a journalist with The Guardian and you were actually writing about the Sicilian Mafia in this period when De Niro was allegedly involved in assassinating these two judges who had pursued the Mafia so aggressively. And the fight between the Cosa Nostra and the Italian state escalated into, as Lorenzo said, a real war. What was it like in Italy at the time? Well, I remember going down to Palermo right after the murder of Giovanni Falcone, and the atmosphere was extraordinary. Where people had previously been silent and withdrawn, and people didn't used to really speak about the mafia openly, I found the city in a state of great uh, grief and open demonstrations. There was a, there were women on hunger strike in the middle of the square. There were processions. People were putting sheets out from their balconies with messages saying, like, no to the mafia. It was really an amazingly powerful moment. Despite that, despite the popular uprising against them, the mafia didn't back down and the war escalated. What happened? So for the first time, as far as I know, they conducted a bombing campaign on the mainland. Parent bomb explosion blasted the heart of Florence, Italy, early this morning, killing at least a half a dozen people. So they went to war in Rome. The mafia suspected in a car bomb attack last night in a swank residential neighborhood of Rome. At least 23 people were hurt there. In Florence. Among the dead were an eight-year-old girl and a nine-month-old baby. And in Milan, they planted bombs. They tried to murder a, a top talk show host, a kind of Piers Morgan of the time, Maurizio Costanza. Wow. And um, they blew up the Uffizi. The famous Uffizi storehouse of some of the world's most famous art treasures was damaged, as were some artworks. They killed. There was a nine-year-old girl amongst the people that were killed. Um, it was a really shocking campaign. The idea was to try and force the state to back down on laws it had passed against the mafia. So high security detention of convicted mafiosi and the seizure of assets from convicted mafia bosses. These were changes in the law that the mafia was trying to force the state to back down by with this bombing campaign. I mean, it was an outrageous gambit. So Messina Denaro goes into hiding um, during this entire bombing campaign. A few months after Matteo Messina Denaro went into hiding, he was involved in one of the most heinous crimes that the Corleonesi carried out. The kidnapping of a young 11-year-old boy whose father was, um, was a witness. His father was a mafioso who had turned state's evidence. And Messina Denaro and another group of men had decided to try and force him to recant by kidnapping his son. God. And there was just an appalling long, long time, months where they kept this boy. They would keep him chained up to radiators in basements, in houses. They kept moving him. They'd put him in the trunk of a car and move him to another place. And this poor little kid who loved the outdoors, there's a beautiful picture of him jumping a horse over an obstacle. And, you know, he had a wonderful outdoor life and they kept him inside, indoors, in cupboards, in basements for two years. And the father didn't back down and his family was just too frightened to do anything. And in the end, they strangled him and dissolved his body in acid. And it seems to have been that was the moment when they overreached. God, astonishing. And such... A contrast to the way that the mafia is often mythologized in films. I mean, this idea of them that we get sometimes when the reality is just disgusting. Yeah. 
And so what was he doing while he was underground? How was he involved in trying to rebuild the image of this organisation? Yeah, there are a lot of mysteries about about how he managed to stay out of sight. He clearly made a lot of money. Uh, He laundered a lot of money. He had businessmen working for him who've been arrested themselves. You know, he had a vast network of people. So he was making money from, I think, from drugs. He was making money from owning legitimate businesses. He had invested in um, energy and garbage disposal, a la Sopranos. So he was operating... Uh, pretty much as before, you know, he would be he would be collecting the tax, the pizza, uh, extortion money from any businesses who wanted to run in the area that he controlled. He was communicating with other bosses via this system of pizzini, which are little tiny scribbled notes that are folded up very, very small and wrapped with sellotape and passed around. So he had his whole system set up. I didn't realise that the mafia really was involved in in waste management consulting, as Tony Soprano put it. Do we know much about his movements during that time? I mean, how he managed to evade detection for three decades? Well, I think uh, money is power in this situation in the sense that if you have money, you can buy anybody. And clearly, as we've seen, you know, people in his town of Castavetrano really regarded him as as their boss. He He was... you know, they protected him. Uh, but he was also obviously very well connected politically. You know, whoever needed to be bought off could be bought off. Lorenzo, can you tell me about this decades-long cat-and-mouse game between Denaro and the police that finally came to an end last week? What have the police efforts to catch him looked like? And have they ever come close before? Well, since the manhunt for Denaro started in 1993, uh, year after year, Italian investigators scorched the earth around him by arresting hundreds of his confederates, including cousins, nephews, and uh, his sister. Uh, There was a bar in Campobello very close from his apartment. The police arrested dozens of people there who allegedly protected him years ago. They placed something like 50 cameras on him. And the Naro, the Naro was going there almost every day, and they still didn't catch him. Hmm. Every time investigators seemed to get closer to their target, the Naro would once again fade away like a ghost. However, however, it is certain that in early 2020, the Naro decided to move to his Sicilian stronghold in the province of Trapani, hiding out in Campobello, five minutes from his hometown. And Lorenzo, how is it possible that it took this long? I mean, you said that police were watching bars that he used to go to. They were coming so close to him so often, but were never able to actually arrest him until last week. How can that be possible? I got a very good clue when I visited his bunker uh, last week in Campobello di Mazzara. So the bunker was uh, located in Campobello, not far from, from his apartment. Campobello is, uh, is, is a small town in, uh, in southwest coast of Sicily, three kilometers from, from the sea. Uh, it's surrounded by orange and tomatoes fields. It's not the beautiful Sicilian town people would expect, uh, but it is five minutes from the Naro's hometown, Castelvetrano, and 11 minutes drive from his mother's house. Uh, that means protection, which is one of the reasons for why 
when you're hiding from the police, you will find protection among your relatives. You don't want to be surrounded by strangers who can easily report you to the police. It's interesting because you expect that a guy like that would have changed his appearance, maybe gone to another continent. But when you put it that way, it makes sense. He needs people that he can trust. And where does he find them? Close to home. What do we know, Lorenzo, about the conditions he was living in, in that bunker, this place where we think he was hiding out for months, maybe years? Well, um, we didn't have the chance to visit the actual bunker because the police is still searching the cove, still looking for... Uh, documents, uh, still looking for any evidence of his presence there. Uh, what, what we know is that they found um, diamonds, emeralds, and gemstones uh, inside inside this bunker, which was concealed inside a closet full of clothes. And uh, they also found a notebook uh, where Denaro was basically uh, writing his uh, personal I would say personal thoughts about about his life. Hmm. He will write. They found some lines about his daughter Lorenza, who rejected him years and years ago, uh, and he was writing uh, some some lines about her. Uh, he was wondering why is Lorenza angry with me. So this, at, at the moment, prosecutors are still, you know, searching his code. So we'll know probably in a couple of weeks what they found. And did you get a chance to talk to the people who lived around him, who lived next door to Italy's most wanted mobster for years, but never saw anything or never chose to tell the police what they saw? Uh, I, w- I was shocked. As a Sicilian, I was shocked. I mean, you know that in these towns ruled by the mafia, people hardly talk in public about a mobster like Denaro. But still, still, I was shocked by their silence. They would tell me, we don't know who he was. Uh, we knew nothing. We saw him drinking espresso every morning, but had no idea who he was. We're talking about people who lived for one year a, a few meters from the boss. Do you believe them that they never thought to inquire, had no idea who he was? I mean, do you think that that's true or they're just telling you that because you're a journalist? Look, there is a Sicilian proverb that roughly translates as he who speaks little will live a hundred years. This is basically the code of silence, the first rule of the mafia, which for three decades protected the narrow and dozens of other mafia bosses before him. It is omerta. It is a mix of fear and lack of trust towards the institution. If he did talk, how high up do you think he would be able to implicate people. What kinds of connections do we suspect he has in Italy? Well, just to give you an idea of uh, how high were the Benaro's connections, uh, what it was a large, according to investigators, uh, he made an empire worth four billions of euros. So when you had that amount of money, uh, I mean... It definitely, you definitely have contacts with higher level of the society. And uh, according to investigators, he was protected by doctors, uh, lawyers, uh, uh, businessmen, politicians, uh, at all the level of the Italian institutions. Coming up, while one of its senior leaders was on the run, how the Sicilian mafia changed and maybe became harder to fight. 
Lorenzo, you told me that Denaro became synonymous with a certain period of the Sicilian mafia at its most violent and perhaps its most influential. So what's happened to the Sicilian mafia in the 30 years since Denaro went into hiding? What does the organization look like now? 30 years ago, the Sicilian mafia uh, controlled, uh, you know, these provinces, these areas, uh, and uh, slowly this has changed. Uh, today, most of the bosses are in prisons or dead. The Sicilian mafia is definitely in, in, in worse shape compared to other mafias such as the Camorra or the Andangheta. They look more like gangs now. Mobsters today in Palermo are former drivers of the old mobsters. And every time they try to raise their ads, they're getting arrested. And so if I was an ordinary person living in Sicily now, maybe someone who owned a business, what kind of role would this new Sicilian mafia play in my life? Well, definitely. I've seen shopkeepers recording with their own cell phones, mobsters coming to the shop asking for pizza for protection money was something it was impossible to imagine in the 80s, and then reporting them to the police. So things have definitely changed. But in the small towns, where everyone knows each other and their secrets, it's still very hard to rebel against a mobster. And the arrest of Denaro is something that has been celebrated across Italy as a massive blow against organised crime. But is that true? What kind of impact will putting Denaro behind bars have on organized crime in Sicily and across the country? Denaro is definitely a person who was the secret of the years of terror. Uh, he's the last godfather of the old mafia, but he's not the last mobster. His arrest is a serious, you know, it's a serious blow to the Cosa Nostra. But I wouldn't say that this, it, this is a blow to the Sicilian Mafia. If he was that important, he wouldn't have been caught, probably. Hmm. The future of the Mafia is a big question mark. He could evolve into sort of a gang, or he could change his face. He could turn into something else, some, something that we have never seen before. He could lower their weapons, but infiltrate the finance. Who knows? And so if the modern mafia is better integrated into the economy, into politics, does that also make them harder to fight? Like, what are police doing to try to crack down on the way the mafia looks now? Well, look, since the death of Giovanni Falcone and Paolo Borsellino in 1992, Italy has certainly demonstrated an attitude of non-tolerance towards the mafias, applying like we say, repressive decrees for the arrest of mafiosi and increasing the powers of anti-mafia prosecutors. Unfortunately, however, the problem of the mafia is is not just the bosses, it's not just the weapons or the drug business. The problem of the mafia in Italy is the mafia mentality, which predates the actual mafia. The mafia mentality consists of, for example, the phenomenon of widespread corruption among politicians, among the people who believe that the state and the law are enemies. You don't fight the mafia mentality with repressive anti-mafia laws. In order to destroy the mafia, you need to change that mafia mentality 
by giving Sicilian people more opportunities, investing in these territories, showing people that the state is there to protect them. If you don't do that, you'll have another denaro. Right, so you don't kill them by arresting mafia members, you do it by dealing with the reason the mafia exists to begin with. Exactly. You have to go to the roots of the problem. Lorenzo, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Lorenzo Tondo, The Guardian's Southern Italy correspondent, speaking with Michael Safi. And earlier you heard from Claire Longrig. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and Solomon King. Additional production by Ellen Lee Beater. The executive producer of Today in Focus is Phil Maynard. That's it for today. We'll be back with a regular episode of Full Story for you tomorrow. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time.